Hello, everybody. Before we start today's podcast, I wanted to let you know that I am having a spring celebration sale on my CCRN. So right now you can buy my CCRN online program for $199. There is no code needed. You can just head over to my website at khoppypresents.com or use the link that I've provided in the description. And it is already marked down to $199 in celebration of spring. This online program is worth 30 continuing education hours, 24 7 365 lifetime access, and you'll also be getting periodic updates as they're available. So I just wanted to let you know and enjoy the podcast. Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye. Hello and welcome to episode 11 of the CCRN Review, where we are taking a step-by-step walk through the core curriculum for critical care nursing. In this episode, we are going to be talking about cardiovascular assessment and particularly honing in on the items that you are most likely to encounter on the CCRN exam. So welcome to all of you who are new to this core curriculum review and welcome back to those of you that have been in previous episodes. My purpose in splitting up the episodes in the way that I do is for you to be able to tailor make your CCRN review based on your learning needs. Another thing I like to mention right before we get started, and that is please head over to my website, which is called khoppypresents.com, K-A-Y-H-O-P-P-E presents.com where you'll find the layout of podcast episodes that will be coming soon, as well as brain teasers uh, that will help you to think about and prepare for the CCRN review based on the content that has been presented thus far. While you're on my website, please remember to subscribe so that you can get notifications of podcasts and other kinds of activities that are coming your way. So without further ado, let's get into talking about cardiovascular assessment. Certainly when you think about the most common chief complaints regarding the cardiovascular system, two that are probably the highest on the hit parade include chest pain and shortness of breath. One of the things that you will find on the exam is AACN wants to make sure that you know how to differentiate the different types of chest pain and the patient presentation that goes along with it. So let's take a moment and walk through the different things that can cause chest pain and some of the associated signs and symptoms. So first of all, of course, we have angina or angina, depending upon if you went to the angina or angina school of nursing. And so when we think about angina, we always look at the E's as uh, elements that provoke anginal pain. And that includes exercise, exertion, exposure to extremes of temperature, emotional distress, eating, And then also, not an E, but certainly one of the 
uh, factors that can precipitate anginal pain, and that is smoking. We typically find in the story that the patient tells that they sit down, they rest, and the chest pain goes away. Maybe we find that the patient is also on an anti-anginal medication. Maybe the patient's on a nitrate, for example. But what is it then that separates angina from crescendo angina or unstable angina? Well, what separates the two is that with crescendo uh, or unstable angina, we are talking about somebody who has had chest pain that is increasing in frequency, severity, and duration. That's usually when they come to us, right? When they have unstable angina. And their normal way of dealing with chest pain, be it rest, for example, is the most common, it's just not working. And so they come in with what's called unstable or uh, crescendo angina. We know that as a very general rule that the anginal pain is retrosternal. It can be diffuse, vague. You know, a lot of times patients even say that, well, I don't, you know, it's not like a pain pain. It's more like a squeezing or a pressure. The very common, you know, I feel like I have an elephant sitting on my chest type of comment. Now, it doesn't have to be retrosternal. Certainly, it can be, um, it can be a, a, a pain that radiates down the left arm, the ulnar aspect of the left arm. It can be just arm pain, arm pain along with numbness. It might be associated with chest pain. You might have chest pain on both sides of your chest. It might radiate up into the neck and the jaw. And for women, we see kind of an entirely different presentation when it comes to anginal pain. And in women, we see that they typically have uh, back pain between the scapula posteriorly, and they have some abdominal distress. They're feeling nauseated. They just don't feel right as far as, you know, their digestive system and they have fatigue. So those three are really some of the classic signs and symptoms that we see in women. And that is, once again, fatigue, back pain, as well as epigastric distress. Maybe it's gradual and onset, duration usually one to four minutes, but maybe as long as 15 minutes. Uh, patients describe this sensation as anywhere from mild to severe. So we can see a lot of different associated or potentially associated signs and symptoms, including tachypnea, tachycardia. They might, you know, have nausea and vomiting, feel real sweaty, weak, definitely anxious as that sympathetic nervous system kicks in. And we may see some T wave or ST segment changes uh, with the pain. Now compare that with acute myocardial infarction. And when we talk about the AMI patient, we are talking about somebody that has severe and unrelenting pain. Uh, again, it can be in the same location as we just talked about for anginal pain, very commonly uh, sudden onset, and it really requires attention. It's not something that goes away in a few minutes. 
So the patient comes in dyspneic, tachycardic, tachypneic. They are diaphoretic. They have that feeling of impending doom. And we see ST segment elevation on the ECG along with hyperacute, tall tombstone-like T waves, or the T waves may be inverted. It depends upon if the patient is presenting during the hyperacute or the evolving stage of an MI. Then we have a dissecting aortic aneurysm. And keep in mind, when we talk about the aorta, we know that we have the thoracic segment of the aorta and we have the abdominal segment of the uh, aorta. So here's a person that comes in with pain that they describe as tearing or ripping type chest pain. Now, I, I did say chest pain, so that would really equate to a dissecting or potentially dissecting thoracic aortic aneurysm. Whereas when they complain of a ripping, tearing type of lower back pain or lumbar pain, then we're looking more along the lines of a patient with a potentially dissecting abdominal aortic aneurysm. Now, in a thoracic aortic aneurysm, it is typically anterior chest. It can also radiate to the back. It can radiate to the shoulders, the neck, and even into the abdomen. Uh, patients describe it as severe and sudden onset. And um, it, it may have lasted for, for quite some time before the patient presents. So they come in with tachycardia and tachypnea. They may even have difficulty swallowing. If there's decreased perfusion to the brain, we can see confusion, maybe even syncope. Of course, we will have those feelings of impending doom as well. When we do our pulse checks, we might find a discrepancy in pulses, one side compared to the other a discrepancy of more than 15 millimeters of mercury difference in one arm versus the other. The patient might also have lower limb weakness. So a lot of differentiating factors, but certainly the ones that stand out is the fact that the pain is is described as ripping, tearing type of chest and back pain in the case of thoracic aortic aneurysm and abdominal lumbar in the case of a dissecting abdominal aortic aneurysm. So another cause of chest pain is pericarditis. And you almost have to discuss pericarditis and pleuritis in one discussion, simply because in both cases, you can find that the patient has sharp stabbing type chest pain and they prefer to be sitting up and they prefer to be leaning forward. They don't want to lay back on the gurney or they don't want to lay back on the bed because it makes the inflammation and thus the pain worse. So in talking about the patient that comes in with pericarditis, we have that sharp stabbing pain. When we listen over to the left side of the chest, we very commonly hear a pericardial friction rub, which is a harsh grating type sound that can be heard 
equally well, really, on um, on contraction and relaxation. So we can hear it well throughout systole and diastole. Now, if it's over on the left side of the chest, it indeed could be a left-sided pleuritic type of chest pain as well. So it would make good sense that if a patient had chest pain over on the left that they describe as sharp and stabbing in nature, it makes the most sense that as you're listening, have the patient hold their breath. Because when you have the patient hold their breath, if the rub that you're hearing goes away, you know that you're talking about a pleuritis issue. Whereas if that rubbing grating sound remains, you know that you are looking at a patient with pericarditis most likely. So let's focus a little bit more on the patient with pericarditis who presents tachycardic, tachypnic, has a fever, they're dyspneic, they have a pericardial friction rub, uh, white cell count may be up, And they may even have some ST segment elevation, which makes you feel as though, oh my gosh, in all those leads, all that ST segment elevation, the patient is having a global MI. Well, look at how they present though. The pain is sharp and stabbing in nature. The patient prefers to sit up and lean forward because it helps to alleviate the pain. I don't know about you guys, but whenever I hear about a pain that is described as sharp and stabbing in nature, the thing that comes to my mind first is an itis, an inflammation of some sort. So typically, pericarditis is sudden onset, but it can last for days and it can be described as mild to severe. It can be described as being located uh, retrosternal. It can radiate to the neck, the shoulders, the arms, the back. And this sharp stabbing pain is typically described as being worse upon inspiration. Also, what kind of patient develops pericarditis? So that will help you in narrowing down your diagnosis of, as well. We see it in patients post-myocardial infarction sometimes, post-cardiac surgery, cardiac trauma, infections, uremia. That's why it is, guys, when patients that have chronic renal failure come in with pericarditis, uh, we always suspect the possibility of a pericardial effusion, and we do an echo. And this is really true of any patient with pericarditis, because when you have inflamed plural layers, one of the worst outcomes of that is the accumulation of fluid and the possibility of cardiac tamponade as a result. So let's move on then to talk about the patient with pleuritis. The patient with pleuritis has a lot of what we talked about before. We said that the patient has sharp stabbing type chest pain doesn't have to be retrosternal. It can be anywhere across the chest. And it's also associated with uh, accentuation upon deep inspiration. The patient will prefer to be sitting upright. Patient is dyspneic, tachycardic. And when you get into the story, they typically have had some sort of respiratory infection prior to coming in. So maybe this is a person that presents... 
uh, with pneumonia as an example. Another cause for chest pain is pulmonary embolism. And remember, and we'll get into this a bit more uh, when we get into the respiratory section of the core review, uh, remember that there are three predisposing factors that predispose somebody to the development of PE, and that is, the, it's known as Virchow's triad, and that's venous stasis, hypercoagulability, as well as anything that causes injury to a vessel wall. So those kinds of things make you think about whether or not your patient is kind of set up for a pulmonary embolism. These patients come in with substernal or retrosternal uh, uh, chest pain that is described very commonly as, again, sharp, knife-like shooting. Sometimes they call it a deep, deep ache or a pressure-type sensation, and it also is worsened by deep inspiration or coughing. So you see there's a lot of overlap here with respect to other etiologies of chest pain, including the patient with pericarditis and the patient with pleuritis. So looking at the things that might set the patient up for PE, that's really important because uh, that helps us kind of um, come in for our diagnosis, of of course, along with other diagnostic studies. Now, these patients come in tachycardic, tachypneic, dyspneic. Uh, They may have a cough, definitely that feeling of impending doom. They may show various atrial types of dysrhythmias. They may also have a right-sided S4, and we're going to be getting into talking about S3s and S4s in just a little while. So we might hear a right-sided S3 or S4. Um, If the right ventricle is failing as a result of the PE, we could also see jugular venous distension. Now, if they've had a pulmonary infarct related to their PE, we might hear a pleural friction rub. They might even have hemoptysis, so a whole variety of different signs and symptoms that correlate with pulmonary embolism. So let's move our way over to pneumothorax. Now, what might cause a pneumothorax? Well, maybe we have someone that has an emphysematous bleb or a congenital bleb. Uh, maybe the patient is on large tidal volumes on the, on the ventilator or um, high PEEP. Or maybe the patient has some sort of uh, traumatic chest wall injury. These patients, they also come in tachypneic, tachycardic, dyspneic, very anxious. They might have jugular venous distension. Now, one of the things that is typically on the test is the hyperresonance to percussion on the affected side. And certainly this is something that, as nurses, we're not used to doing. I mean, I have never really incorporated uh, percussion of the chest in my uh, respiratory assessment. So as a very brief review, the normal percussion note, guys, when you tap over the chest wall is called resonance. And so what we see in the presence of a pneumothorax 
is we hear hyper resonant sounds when we tap on the chest. Now, if it's a hemothorax, there is no word as hypo resonant, guys. If we tap on the chest when it's full of fluid, then we say that the chest sounds dull to percussion. But hyperresonance is what we're looking at here or what we're hearing in a patient with a pneumothorax. Of course, diminished breath sounds on the affected side. That's certainly one thing that makes it stand out from other causes of chest pain. The patient may also have subcutaneous emphysema, and that's where the patient has crepitus, right? And we always say that that feels kind of like Rice Krispies beneath your fingers. In the case of attention pneumothorax, we may even note tracheal deviation. Now, those patients, the patients with pneumothorax, they describe their chest pain as tearing and sharp and worsened by breathing. Now, this pain can be located lateral chest. It may be uh, radiating up to the shoulder, the back, the arms. Very commonly, it's sudden onset and it's described as mild to severe. So dyspnea is a big signal here, along with unilateral absence of breath sounds. Of course, this is the type of patient that we are going to insert a chest tube into. All right, next type of chest pain is GI-related. And so when we talk about GI pain, patients typically come in with mild to moderate severity of chest pain. It might be gradual or sudden. As far as the duration, it might be minutes to hours to days. So this might be an unrelenting type of pain that has lasted a while. So the associated symptoms here, patient uh, can complain of vomiting and nausea, feel dyspneic, have diaphoresis, as well as anxiety. They typically will say that sitting up or using antacids um, help them, and they they describe the quality of the pain as being dull, kind of heartburn-like, burning, squeezing, and it's worsened by eating or supine position. So some of the things that can provoke a GI associated chest pain, including, include smoking and stress and caffeine and alcohol and real acidic foods or foods that are high in fat. Musculoskeletal chest pain, however, is one that is very positional. And what I mean by that is that patients will complain that it's stabbing or sore or tender And the pain is worsened by a certain type of movement in most cases. So it's localized to one side of the chest or the back or one area. And it's described as mild to moderate. Maybe a gradual or a sudden onset as far as timing's concerned. And it may have lasted for weeks. So the patient comes in, tachypnic, 
Uh, sometimes they can have splinting respirations. They don't want to take a deep breath because it hurts. And the pain is very localized and tender. So then you want to evaluate whether the patient has put any excess stress on the musculature of the thorax or arms or shoulders. In Wisconsin, in the winter, it's very common uh, related to shoveling snow, for example, or it could be related to raking the leaves, anything that puts excessive uh, stress on the arms, the shoulders, the chest that the patient is not used to. Maybe the patient just started taking a weightlifting class and comes in with chest pain that is localized and palpable. So that's very commonly relieved by uh, NSAIDs. Last but not least, we have psychosomatic chest pain, and that typically is related to stress. And patients uh, with psychosomatic chest pain come in with precordial pain that they can describe as anywhere from dull and aching to sharp and stabbing. It might be superficial, onset, gradual, or sudden. And these patients come in almost looking very much like they're having a panic attack. So they are tachypnic, they're dyspneic, they have palpitations, dry mouth, they may feel dizzy, they might have tingling of the hands or lips, and very frequent sighing. Those are some of the signs of a panic attack and psychosomatic-related chest pain. So guys, let's go ahead and get into the physical exam of the heart and vasculature. And we will start out with inspection. We are going to do inspection and palpation and auscultation. There isn't a whole lot of percussion when it comes to the cardiovascular system. So uh, we will stick with the other three. I'm going to be spending the majority of our time talking about heart sounds. So we're going to start out with a, just a very brief review of terms and normals. We'll start out with that first. First of all, keep in mind that when we talk about orthostatic changes, that is a drop of 15 millimeters of mercury systolic or 5 millimeters of mercury diastolic when standing. And also keep in mind that we have to wait two minutes before taking a blood pressure and heart rate after changing positions in order to determine that somebody is orthostatic. Also, Keep in mind that a variation of up to 15 millimeters of mercury between arms is considered to be normal. And also we anticipate the pressure in the legs to be about 10 millimeters of mercury higher than the upper extremities. Also remember for the exam, pulse pressure. Pulse pressure is where we take the systolic blood pressure and subtract from it the diastolic blood pressure. And so we see the pulse pressure narrow when we have increased sympathetic tone, increased catecholamines. Now that might be the patient's endogenous catecholamines, or it might be the person who we have on catecholamines via, via continuous IV infusion. 
Normally, we would expect a pulse pressure to be somewhere between 40 and 60 millimeters of mercury. As that narrows, we think about increased sympathetic tone and we think about shock. When the pulse pressure widens, we think about things like increase in intracranial pressure and we also think about the possibility of sepsis as the patient dilates out. Also, cyanosis, let's talk about it with inspection and particularly peripheral versus central cyanosis. Peripheral cyanosis is defined as cyanosis that exists in the nail beds, for example. It can also be seen in the fingertips as well as the toes. And what it represents is peripheral hypoperfusion or vasoconstriction. When we talk about central cyanosis, central cyanosis is seen in the lips, the tongue, the mucous membranes of the mouth. That's a really good place to look. And central cyanosis truly reflects desaturation, whereas peripheral cyanosis does not. In patients with dark skin, we look for cyanosis in the form of an ashen color. Ruddiness of the skin is very commonly seen in patients that are polycythemic or hypercapnic or both in the case of our patient with COPD with chronic CO2 retention. Also, when we're inspecting, of course, we're looking for edema. As a general rule, edema indicates that there's an increased amount of interstitial fluid, typically 30% above normal. We also look for lesions, of course. So in arterial disease, we can see things like uh, ulcers on the feet. We can see um, decreased perfusion of the toes and at points of, of trauma. In venous disease, we can see venous stasis discoloration of the lower extremities. Kind of looks like the patient has brown socks on, knee socks actually. And they are most likely to get lesions on the sides of the ankles. So we, looking at the nail beds, of course, clubbing, uh, that's indicative of chronic hypoxia, splinter hemorrhages, which are reddish black linear streaks in the nail beds uh, from the base to the tip of the nail. And that may indicate a patient with bacterial endocarditis. Osler's nodes, we'll be talking about these a little bit later when we get into talking about endocarditis, but Osler nodes are little subcutaneous nodules that are on the fingertips that may also be indicative of, uh, endocarditis. So when we talk about, um, The neck, of course, we're looking for jugular venous distension. And in the case of jugular venous distension, we know that we're probably looking at a patient with right ventricular failure, hypervolemia, tension pneumothorax, or cardiac tamponade. Another thing we do is we're moving our way down the body, and now we're getting into um, not only inspection, but also palpation is to assess for the hepatojugular reflux, which is also known as the abdominojugular reflux. 
Now, this is something that we would assess for in a heart failure patient, particularly if we were assessing for right-sided heart failure. And basically what we're doing is we are applying pressure in the right upper quadrant and it's deep palpation, sliding fingertips under the right costal margin and looking for engorgement of the jugular veins. So it is this pressure and that pressure is applied for about 30 to 60 seconds all the while looking at the jugular veins to see if the jugular veins become engorged with that pressure. That tells you that you have the backup of pressure or reflux of pressure due to venous congestion. And of course, blood backs up into the liver and into the systemic circulation when the patient has right-sided heart failure. Another common CCRN test question has to do with the PMI, which is also known as the point of maximal impulse or the point of maximal intensity. Now, remember, this is something that you feel. It's not something that you inspect or is, it's not something that you auscultate. It's something that you feel. And the normal location of the PMI is at the fifth intercostal space, left midclavicular line. And it feels like, um, you know, the apex of the heart hitting up against the chest wall, which indeed is what it is. And it's about a quarter to a half dollar size in terms of, you know, the area where you can palpate the PMI. So we see, for example, that the PMI is displaced laterally in association with patients with left ventricular dilation uh, or left ventricular hypertrophy. So the PMI can also be downward and laterally displaced in anybody that has upward displacement of the diaphragm like patients that are pregnant, people who are pregnant, as well as ascites. It pushes the apex of the heart to the left. There may also be a right to left mediastinal shift, like in somebody with a right pleural effusion or somebody with a tension pneumothorax. Now let's also take a moment and define the term heave. Uh, heave is actually something you inspect. It's something that you see, and that is where you can actually see the, con- the heart contracting and relaxing by inspecting the chest wall. So that's indicative of a pretty large ventricle. You can see a left ventricular heave by looking at the apex. So down around that fifth intercostal space, left midclavicular line, a right ventricular heave, uh, indicative of right ventricular enlargement, can be seen in the parasternal area. A couple of additional terms that we need to define are brewy and thrill. A thrill is something you feel, okay? So it's palpation, whereas a brewy is something that you hear. So the 
palpable thrill is like palpating the vibration of a murmur. So for example, when we get into talking about murmurs in just a little while, you'll find that the murmurs are all classified using the Levine scale, which is a scale that goes from one to six, six being the worst murmur and a one being a sometimes very benign murmur. And so we will find that grade four and above on the Levine scale, not only have a murmur that you can hear, but also a palpable thrill. So think about a thrill, you feel it, it's a palpable murmur, okay? Or let's just say a palpable vibration. Whereas a brewery is something that you hear and a brewery can be heard when blood uh, rushes into an area that is dilated in the case of a aneurysm or blood going into an area that's restricted as in a carotid artery stenosis. Now, before we get into auscultation of heart tones, we need to finish off with arterial versus venous insufficiency because this is really definitely a testable uh, item on the CCRN exam. So what is the difference? Well, when a patient comes in with arterial insufficiency or arterial vascular disease, they come in with excruciating pain. Uh, typically claudication, depending upon where in the arterial network the patient has the, um, the narrowing. So we'll be talking about that more, by the way, when we get into looking at patients with arterial and venous vascular disease, but we're going to differentiate them now during our assessment section. So patients with arterial disease have diminished pulses, the color of the extremity, typically pale, might be cool or actually cold. Edema, you don't usually see it unless the patient also has venous insufficiency to go along with it. However, they do have changes to the skin. And what we see is thin, shiny, atrophic skin, uh, which is absent of hair many times and very thickened toenails. With venous insufficiency, Patients typically complain more of a cramping-like pain versus an excruciating pain. Um, They are definitely apt to develop thrombophlebitis, may have a positive Holman sign. Uh, Pulses, if you can feel them, are very often normal. And the reason why I'm saying if you can feel them is because these patients very often have some pretty edematous lower extremities. The skin can look normal, ruddy, or due to venous stasis, we can see that discoloration of the lower extremities up to the knee very commonly. Temperature is usually uh, warm. And as I mentioned before, that um, sites of trauma and tissue breakdown very commonly occur for these patients in the ankle area. One other item that I'd like to go through before we uh, get into talking about heart tones is I would like to talk about pulses alternens and pulses paradoxus. And then we'll get from that right into our heart tones. 
When we talk about pulses alternans, now just think about what that sounds like. Pulses. Okay, that sounds like pulse. Alternans. That means alternate. The best way to pick up on pulses alternans is with an arterial line in place. And if a patient does not have an arterial line in place, then we can pick it up peripherally by palpating the patient's pulses. So what is pulses alternans? It is where the amplitude of the pulse varies from beat to beat. And the two most common causes of pulses alternans is atrial fibrillation. And you can see that on the monitor when you have an arterial line in place. You can see the amplitude of the systolic pulse vary from beat to beat. Or you can feel it peripherally along with the fact that not only is there alternating um, amplitude from one pulse to the next, but of course you also find in atrial fibrillation that the patient's pulse is irregularly irregular. Now, what is pulsus paradoxus? Pulsus paradoxus is where the patient has a, a, a decrease in blood pressure more than 10 millimeters of mercury during inspiration. Pulsus paradoxus. Again, best picked up on using an arterial line. So pulses paradoxus can be found in patients with pericardial effusion, constrictive pericarditis, cardiac tamponade, even in patients with severe lung disease or advanced heart failure, and um, patients in shock. So let's finish up our cardiovascular assessment episode talking about heart sounds. And first of all, let's just take a brief run through the auscultatory areas. We know that the aortic auscultatory area is in the second intercostal space to the right of the sternum, whereas the pulmonic area is second intercostal space to the left of the sternum. If you have trouble finding the second intercostal space, Remember that when the manubrium and the body of the sternum adjoin, there is a bony bump called the angle of Louis. And what's important anatomically there is that the angle of Louis attaches to the second rib. And remember guys, the intercostal space is always labeled after the rib that's above it. So we find that bony bump on the sternum where the manubrium and the body of the sternum attach. That's called the angle of Louis that attaches to the second rib, a very common CCRN question. And then right below that second rib, we have the second intercostal space. So that will get you there. You simply have to march down from that second inner space to the third rib, third intercostal space, fourth rib, fourth intercostal space, and so on. So we talked about the aortic and pulmonic area. And then we also have Herb's Point, which is located the, at the third interspace at the left sternal border. This area, along with the tricuspid area, is a pretty good area to be assessing the right ventricle. The tricuspid area is the fifth intercostal space left sternal border. And then last but not least, 
the mitral area is the fifth intercostal space left midclavicular line. Now, the reason why these auscultatory areas are named that the way they are is because that is where you can hear those particular valves the best. So the aortic and pulmonic area, that's where you can hear the semilunar valves the best, whereas down around the lower left sternal border and at the apex, that's where you are best able to hear the AV valves close. And by the way, it's AV valve closure that produces S1 and it's semilunar valve closure that produces S2. So they produce our lub and our dub. If you need a review on anatomy, please head off to uh, episode three, where we get into a full-blown hour on cardiovascular anatomy and physiology. So let us set our focus on extra sounds and murmurs. And let's start off with S3. S3 is a diastolic murmur. So remember, diastolic murmurs are heard between S2 and the next S1. And S3 is actually an early diastolic sound. So it sounds like Now, think about diastole. What happens, guys? Ventricular diastole. The AV valves open up and we have this immediately immediate rushing of blood that had been accumulating in the atria that blood just literally dumps down into the ventricles during early diastole if you have somebody that has a non-compliant ventricle and you might be saying to yourself okay what causes a ventricle to be non-compliant well it might be an ischemic ventricle it could be a, a ventricle that already is over full because of heart failure. It could be a ventricle that has had previous MIs in the past and is not very distensible, making it therefore non-compliant. Any one of those things can cause ventricular non-compliance. And all of a sudden, this ventricle is confronted with all this volume that comes down the moment that the AV valves open, and what you're hearing as an S3 in early diastole is the vibratory sound as that blood tries to rush down into uh, the, the right or left ventricle. Because there can be a right ventricular S3 located, uh, the sound located closer to the sternum, or there can be a left ventricular S3 sound heard closer to the apex. The S3 is a low pitch sound, so therefore it's best heard with the bell of your stethoscope. It's best heard with the patient's supine or up to maybe 30 degrees. You can even accentuate it by having the patient roll over on their left side. That can help accentuate the sound. So again, S3, early diastolic, low pitched use the bell of the stethoscope, have the patient either laying or rolling over on their left lateral side in order to accentuate the sound. It is a sound of filling into a non-compliant ventricle. Let's move on to S4. S4 is a late diastolic sound. 
It is so late in diastole, in fact, that it's sometimes referred to as a pre-systolic sound because it happens immediately prior to systole. And what I always like to tell people is I, I like to tell people that, you know, the S4 sounds a lot like S1 stuttering. It sounds like la-lub-dub, Now, I know that we've been taught in the past that S3 sounds like Kentucky, Kentucky. And S4 sounds like Tennessee, Tennessee. But really, at least it's been my clinical practice that that doesn't help, despite the fact that some of the nicest people anywhere are in Kentucky and Tennessee. Those states are not helpful in picking out heart tones uh, because it just doesn't really sound like that, guys. It really doesn't. So as three is a lub de bub, whereas as four is la lub de bub, as four, again, low pitched, use the bell of your stethoscope with the patient supine. And with an S4, guys, an S4 represents filling into a non compliant ventricle at the end of diastole. And if you'll remember, guys, at the end of diastole, that is when the atria contract, right? The atria contract that last 30% of ventricular filling in order to complete ventricular filling prior to systole. And so atrial contraction, that last 30% is forced down into a ventricle that's non-compliant for the same reasons that we just discussed. And now we have a ventricle where we have that, that vibratory sound that produces for us an S4. So it should stand to reason then, guys, that people in atrial fib would not have an S4 because an S4 is produced by atrial contraction of that last 30% of ventricular filling. And we know in atrial fib, we lose that contraction. We lose that atrial kick. So they cannot have an S4. Be very careful about that on the exam. Next, let's talk about murmurs. Let's talk about systolic versus diastolic murmurs. Systolic murmurs are heard between S1 and S2. Sometimes they're so loud you can't even really hear S1 and S2. So a systolic murmur that's very commonly on the exam is the murmur of mitral regurge or mitral insufficiency. It is described as a pan-systolic or a holosystolic murmur. They both mean the same thing, guys. What it means is, is that same sound can be heard throughout all of systole. So you have lub-stub, lub-stub, lub-stub. Sometimes you don't even hear the first heart sound. You just hear stub, 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 stub. And remember back from episode three, we said that one of the ways that you can plot out a murmur as to whether it is systolic or diastolic is to put your fingers on the patient's carotid and feel for the carotid pulsation. If the murmur that you hear 
correlates with the carotid pulsation that you feel, that is a systolic murmur. If it doesn't correlate, you have a diastolic murmur. So the two most common systolic murmurs are the murmurs of mitral regurge, which we just talked about, and the other, and we said that that is pan-systolic, whereas the murmur of aortic stenosis, which is also a systolic murmur, is described as a diamond-shaped murmur because it has a crescendo, decrescendo sound, which means that it gets louder and it gets softer, producing a diamond shape. It also typically is a harsh murmur. And of course, we would listen for it in the aortic area. We would listen in the second intercostal space to the right of the sternum for this harsh murmur. And the positioning for murmurs related to the semilunar valves is different because for these patients, we are going to have them sitting up and leaning forward, and that will help accentuate the sound. Now, when we talk about diastolic murmurs, the diastolic murmurs that we encounter are from uh, mitral or tricuspid stenosis or aortic and pulmonic insufficiency. So they would be heard between S2 and the next S1, heard during the diastolic phase. Now, another thing that I want to point out to you is that when we look at a murmur that originates on the right side of the heart, now keep in mind the right-sided heart valves are what? The tricuspid which separates the right atrium from the right ventricle, as well as the pulmonic valve, which separates the right ventricle from the pulmonary artery. Whereas left-sided heart valves are the mitral in between the left atrium and left ventricle and the aortic in between the left ventricle and the aorta. Now, where am I going with this? Right-sided heart valve murmurs can be made louder by having your patient take some deep breaths because that negative pressure is confronting the right side of the heart with more flow. So upon inspiration, right-sided heart murmurs will get louder. So that's one way, as well as their location, One way that you can help to differentiate a murmur that originates from a right-sided heart valve from a murmur that originates from a left-sided heart valve. So finally, when we talk about murmurs, we need to describe them. We need to talk about whether or not they're heard in systole or diastole. Sometimes we have murmurs that we can hear you know, because of a a couple of different valve related issues. So, you know, the heart sounds like a a mess. You hear murmurs on both systole and diastole. We want to know if that murmur is associated with a uh, palpable thrill. Now, earlier we talked about the Levine scale and we said that the Levine scale goes one through six. And anytime you hear a murmur, 
Put your fingers over that murmur and see if there's a palpable vibration beneath your fingers. If that's true, the patient is said to have a palpable thrill. If there's a palpable thrill present, you know that the patient has a grade four or above murmur. The next thing you do, which helps differentiate grade four from grade five and grade six, is just tip up your stethoscope a little bit where an edge of the stethoscope is off the chest and see if you can still hear the murmur. If you can still hear the murmur, we know it's minimally a grade five. Now I want you to lift that stethoscope off the chest by about a half inch, a half inch to an inch, and see if you can still hear that murmur. So if you have a palpable thrill and you can actually take the stethoscope a half to an inch off the chest in that area and still hear that murmur, you've got a grade six. If you can't hear it, but you can hear it, if you have the stethoscope partially applied to the chest, then you have yourself a grade five murmur. So I hope this session has helped you review your cardiovascular assessment skills. Now, most of the cardiovascular assessment related questions will be incorporated into case studies as you go through the CCRN, although there may be some questions that rely just on rote memorization. So guys, I want to thank you for being with me today and to, uh, you know, spending your time and going over cardiovascular assessment. I encourage you to please go to my website and subscribe so you can be notified of future podcasts and events and brain teasers that I'm sending your way. Again, it is khoppypresents.com. Thank you so much for being with me today, guys, and take care. Bye-bye.